From the Asgard Company Studios in beautiful Wichita Falls, Texas, from the finest mind in the modern fitness industry, the one true voice in the strength and conditioning profession, the most important podcast on the internet. Ladies and gentlemen, starting Strength Radio. Thank you, Mark Wolf. Welcome to Starting Strength Radio, where... um, finest mind in the strength and conditioning industry pontificates from time to time. Well, actually, every Friday. And uh, your questions get answered occasionally, and this is one of those occasions. Today, we are going to read and answer the best questions off of uh, the uh, Speak Up, the Speak Up channel and that is linked to by the way on my q a if you'd like to submit a question to starting strength radio for future consideration in one of these podcasts we encourage you to do that at the speak up link to be found at the q a the mark ripito q a on the website now we don't do all of the questions back when we used to do the ask rip we would do all of the questions and yeah, just for entertainment purposes, but we're we're actually trying to make this an informative hour-long podcast instead of twelve minutes of making fun of the general public. Uh, so to today, what we're going to do is just read the best of these questions. We're going to leave the stupid ones out because. It's not productive, and maybe we'll be funny, you know, accidentally. Sometimes we are. All right, so let's just dive right into these questions. Now, these things have been submitted over, this is probably two, three weeks ago. These things were submitted. We're just getting around to them. Hey, it's our schedule, you know. Sam asks, and you'll you'll note that I have checked off some of the ones those are the ones having reviewed them first these are the ones we're going to talk to today we're going to speak to sam's question now which says do you remember the first person you trained using the starting strength model if so can you share the experience and if he or she is still strength trained all right first off um the starting strength model evolved over about 20 years of me operating the gym. And I've said this on several occasions. What uh, ended up happening that generated the starting strength model is I was a competitive power lifter. And, and uh, as a result of that, I thought it was probably a good idea to teach everybody to squat, bench, and deadlift. Now, over the years, we have, uh, we have uh, tailored the execution of the exercises to meet the needs of general strength training uh, and not competitive powerlifting. Competitive powerlifting is not what it used to be, okay, Uh, with the uh, arrival of 30, 35 different federations on the scene, only only one of which, best I can tell, uh, actually judges depth in the squat. if you've got 35 federations, you've got uh, 34 federations that are recreational. They're for you to go to to lift heavy weights in your suit and wraps and, you know, go out in the parking lot and smoke between lifts and, you know, trade tattoo ideas and talk like macho man Randy Savage. <laughs> It's a completely different activity now than it was a long time ago. So uh, when I was teaching people in the gym a long time ago, what we what we did was just teach the squat, bench press, and the deadlift. Uh, at some later date, I added the, the standing press, the overhead press, which is just called the press. And I've always taught to power clean along with all the other lifts. And these were the, these five lifts are the core of the starting strength method. And it developed over time. And what I did was keep 
a logbook for my personal training clients. And when I would write down um, Monday's workout, for example, I would write it down in a, in a vertical column in the, in the logbook, and I'd get five per page, five, five workouts per page, so I'd have ten workouts open on two pages of, of uh, paper. And I noticed something quite early. If we just went up a little bit every workout, five pounds, depending on who the client was, uh, what I could do is at the end of 10 workouts, open these things, open the, the two pages up and show these people a linear increase in the amount of weight they were lifting on all of the exercises because we just go up every time. We didn't vary the exercises. We varied the load on the exercises. And that's the basis of the starting strength method. And that developed uh, as a result of my interest in retaining personal training clients and in my interest in showing my members some actual return on their investment month to month. So uh, this is the, where the the thing came from i didn't this was not in a published paper i didn't i've never read anything that even indicates any activity in that direction in a journal article uh, i developed this this method using the general public uh, there have been some people recently say that the starting strength method included power cleans because I developed the method for high school kids. Nothing could be further from the truth because I've never had any significant number of high school athletes in my gym at any one time anyway because they're not allowed to come in because if you're on a high school varsity sports team, your training is controlled by the lunatics that run that program, not me, because they're not going to let me have control of something that they desperately want control of because high school coaches are, you know, they're about control. You may have noticed that. And uh, so that was, that was never a factor, what it, what it was. This is just a commercial effort on my part to, to demonstrate progress from workout to workout, week to week, month to month. And that's where it developed. It developed out of the, out of the power lifts done in a progressively heavier manner when I was running the gym. Now, uh, since that's the case, I don't remember who the first one was. No, because the program developed. I didn't just write it down one day and go, it's not what happened. It just occurred over time. And I've, I've still got two or three members now that are members of the gym right now that have been members with me the whole time. But most people's training history, oh, you know, there's an attrition rate, a rather high attrition rate in any gym. Most people don't train all their lives. And uh, if you keep a member for three or four years, that's pretty good. But usually life presents things to compete with your training and most people just go ahead and stop after a while. So no, I don't have, uh, I don't have the information for you about who was first and are they still training? Uh, because of, uh, the way the whole thing developed. Okay. Now anonymous, uh, asks, which articles or sections of the book do you think have been underappreciated or perhaps misunderstood by your audience? Uh, nobody reads the book. <laughs> nobody reads the book. Anyway, what are you talking about? The whole damn thing has been misunderstood and underappreciated because you didn't read it either. All right, You read at it, but you didn't read it. Now, did you? When you got the book, you started thumbing through it and tried to find the workout that you wanted it to, to help you with. And then you did that, and, but you didn't read the book. Practical programming, you certainly as hell did not read practical programming because it's dense and it's, it's busy and it's uh, uh, got a bunch of complicated concepts in it, and it's a textbook. It's not a, 
It's not light reading. It's not People magazine. It's not muscle and fitness. It's not, uh, uh, what's, what, what's one of the publications they've got now? I haven't even kept track. Is Flex still being published? Probably. You had not seen it in? I haven't seen it. Men's Health, Men's Fitness, those two are. Those are the big ones. Those are the two big ones. Is there a Women's Health? That's about like lipstick, though, right? Get your butt bigger. bigger butt. Okay. <clears throat> well, uh, so those are what we're competing with, and they're easier to read than our shit. Uh, Starting Strength is a long book. It's a complicated book. There's 60 pages about the squat. No other book in existence devotes 60 pages to the execution of the squat. Uh, practical programming is a is a textbook. It's uh, it's the most thorough treatment of strength training that's ever been published. And uh, no, I doubt you read it. I really doubt you read it. I think you might have a copy, but I don't think you actually read the thing. So you don't really know what's in it. And as a result, you misunderstand it. If you'll read it, it will be helpful to you. And you will, you will see that most of the questions uh, that arise, uh, in fact, are, are, are dealt with at, in detail in, in one of those two books. And, uh, and I think you'll, uh, you'll appreciate the, the, uh, the work that went into it if you'll, just, if you'll just read it. Now, those of you that are aspiring to be starting strength coaches have probably read it. Read it again. Read both of them again because uh, this is dense. It's dense material. It's not dense like Taleb's stuff, but it's headed in that direction because every time I thought of an idea, I put it back in the book, and it's it's just a whole bunch of stuff in there. So I would uh, I would suggest that if you if the books have been misunderstood uh, and underappreciated, it's because they haven't been read. Because we know that's the case. We know that you haven't read them. We know. All right, now, here is Chad Hughes. Chad Hughes asks, Why isn't starting strength used more often to train competitive athletes? I read your two-factor model for training athletes, which is get stronger under the bar and then go practice your sport, but would ask if you were training a baseball player, what, if anything, would you have them do differently? I know your recommendation about the press being very important for overhead throwing athletes, but I know some others disagree with this. I would love to hear your thoughts. Well, um, there's several questions in here. Uh, why isn't it used more often to train competitive athletes? Because competitive athletes have a strength coach. And most strength coaches that are not starting strength coaches do not understand or appreciate the effectiveness of this program. And that's not my fault. That's their fault because, once again, they haven't read the book. Uh, just like everybody else, they haven't read the book. They don't see how, uh, how precisely and exactly an increase in strength over time is possible and how it positively affects their athlete's performance in any sport. And the systematic, simple, progressive nature of this thing is not, is not romantic to sports coaches who aren't very smart. And they, they just don't understand that if we, if we get your squat and your deadlift up, that your tennis game improves because they don't see the relationship between the squat and tennis. And once again, this is not my fault. But uh, what we uh, what we see in in especially in Division One and pro level athletics is uh, a complete absence of this methodology being applied to these athletes' training. And the reason they get away with it is because athletes at the D1 and professional level are all freaks 
who are performing at a very high level anyway. All right. Now, the question I would ask is, would they be better off if they were stronger? Would, would an NFL team be better on the field in the fourth quarter and have less people on the injured reserve list if everyone on the team did this simple approach to strength training and everybody on the team had a 500 squat? And it's possible for those athletes at that level to have a 500 squat without a great deal of specialization. Yes, they'd be better off. They would all be better off. Why don't they do it? Because they're not competing against anybody that does. And, uh, and, and, you know, we get this all the time. You know, if your program is so good, why aren't the best athletes in the world doing it? Because the best, best athletes in the world don't have to do it. They don't have to do it. So they don't. Because it's easier to take steroids. You know, but if you take steroids to get strong instead of doing your deadlifts and adding five pounds a week to your deadlifts to get strong, then there are complications that come along with that, some of which involve having to go talk to John McCain in the Senate committee, as Mr. Bonds had to do. Now, I'd rather not have to talk to the Senate if I was at, you know, at the professional level. I don't want to go talk to the Senate. I'd much rather just add five pounds a week to my deadlift and get it up and get strong that way. It, it's really easier. It's quite a bit easier to do it that way than it is to take steroids. Uh, it's legal. You don't draw the ire of uh, the ingenious sports writers at Sports Illustrated or ESPN. And, uh, you know, I... I, I you you just have a you have a situation here where this hasn't caught on yet it's it's excessively simple which means that only people of above average intelligence understand it as uh as odd as that sounds uh complexity appeals to stupid people uh, that's, that may seem harsh, but that, that's actually the case. Complexity appeals to stupid people. A comms razor being an extremely important concept here. Look that up. And uh, I think you find that uh, uh, extremely elite athletes are extremely elite athletes because of their genetics and the trainers of extremely elite athletes are hiding behind the genetics of the players. We've said that for decades, and that remains to be the case. Some of the very worst strength and conditioning uh, people, strength and conditioning professionals uh, working in sports are found at the pro and D1 levels because you don't have to be good if you're dealing with athletes of that caliber. And that's the case. Now, try to explain that to the general public. How do you explain to the general public that the best athlete may be using a terribly ineffective system of strength and conditioning? How do you explain that to them? It's hard to do. It's hard to explain it because uh, it seems logical that the best athlete would be doing the best stuff. And that's not true. Not at all. And uh, nonetheless, it remains extremely difficult to have a conversation about with most people. But, you know, some people understand it. So, A, and B, we don't care about being in professional athletics. We're, I'm much more interested in teaching Who's the quarterback? Tom Brady. I'm much more interested in teaching Tom Brady's mother how to get stronger than I am interested in trying to wade through Tom's problems. Okay. Uh, 
his mom is more important to us than he is because there are more moms than there are elite freak athletes. They comprise a larger percentage of the market, and uh, there are enough of those people that are sufficiently intelligent to understand what we're trying to tell them that we don't need to deal with the thousand or so freak athletes in the United States at any given time. I don't care about them. The only reason I'd be interested in training an athlete like that would be the notoriety would bring the program. But that hasn't happened yet. It will eventually. Until then, I'm content to just be effective at what I do. Okay? Now, the second half of that question, how would I train a baseball player? Well, I'd have him press. Yes, I know that that uh, physical therapists don't understand that pressing overhead is good for the shoulder. Once again, that's not my fault. Physical therapists don't understand lots of things. And uh, maybe we'll do a, a little expose on physical therapy here one of these days. But uh, I... I don't know how to explain any more thoroughly than I've explained that shoulder impingement does not occur in an overhead press. We've demonstrated that anatomically. Experience has shown it. In fact, there are several physical therapists that have realized this and are now using our overhead press method to rehab uh, rotator cuff repairs. A strong shoulder is a, is a healthier shoulder and a more injury-resistant shoulder. I, if, if that's complicated, I'm sorry, but that's, that's just all there is to it. So if I was going to train a baseball player, if I was training a baseball player, he would, guess what? He would squat, he would press, he would bench press, he would deadlift, and he would power clean. He might even power snatch since he's a good athlete and he can learn that movement without a lot of drama. And then I would have him practice on the field, just like we do everything. Baseball is a perfect example of how the two-factor model directly applies to what they're trying to do. So uh, those are my thoughts on that. So next, Ryan wants to know, can you sell your Wichita Falls Athletic Club meat shirts to the public? They're cool. Yeah, we can do that, Ryan. I think we do. I think they're on Amazon. Where are they obtained on Amazon? Just search WFAC Strength Lifting. WFAC Strength Lifting, and the shirts come up. Beat you to it, didn't we? All right, now, here's a little more involved question. Uh, it's also from Anonymous. <coughs> Why do you think people don't want to list their names when they, they don't want to be put these questions? Well, I haven't ridiculed anybody because of their name. <laughs> you know, like if somebody lists his name as like monkey vomit, well, <laughs> you know, that might draw a little criticism. But some guy named Jeff Hairston, why would I make fun of his name? Yeah, I, I mean, I'm sitting here with Ripito, right? <laughs> Uh, doesn't leave me a lot of room to make fun of other people's names. Yet, Anonymous is popular here, all right? How much pain do you think is a good sign to make us rethink about our lifting technique or programming? I'm not responsible for the grammar. I'm sore and have pain here and there all the time ever since I started lifting weights. Well, This is going to take a while, but I think it's probably good to go ahead and and uh, differentiate between a few things here. Soreness can be interpreted as pain. When I think of pain, I don't think of soreness. Soreness is chronic. It's systemic. It's all over a group of muscles. It's a result of eccentric loading. Look that up. And uh, it's a normal consequence of training. 
although bone deep, horrible soreness all the time, is neither a sign of intelligently designed training or something good for you. Soreness does not make you stronger. Lifting more weight than you did last time makes you stronger. That might also make you sore, but the soreness isn't the point. And if you're training because you like the feeling of being sore, grow the fuck up. You know, we're not here to help you pay penance to some idea that you've got that you're guilty of something. Okay, we're not, that's, that's not what we're doing. You can go on all the way through a six months novice progression and be badly sore one time. That's all. And if you're badly sore all the time, something's wrong with your programming. You shouldn't be badly sore. But soreness, once again, I guess it could be interpreted as pain. But when I think of pain, I think of acute pain in one area, in a joint, or a muscle belly that's torn, or something else that is a result of an injury. Injury and soreness Delayed onset muscle soreness are two completely different sensations and they're two completely different uh, events. Uh, the event that makes you sore is the normal execution of a workout to which you are not adapted, the, the eccentric part of which you're not adapted. An injury means something is wrong, something got hurt. Something, something broke, something ruptured, something gave way under the execution of the, of the force against the load. Something got pushed into the wrong position. Something got stretched too far, too rapidly in a deceleration. There's several, obviously several mechanisms by which injuries occur. Injuries are not good for you either, all right, any more than chronic extreme soreness is. But the mechanisms, oh, the mechanisms are, are, are similar at some level. The, the, the chronic soreness that you feel, uh, for example, in your hamstrings after lunge walks, loaded lunge walks or something stupid like that, are the result of an inflammatory process by which that tissue is attempting to heal itself, okay? Soreness is an inflammatory process. This is why it is delayed in its onset. Uh, when, you, when you stress uh, a muscle group with eccentric loading, uh, the current theory on this is that you are damaging the, the contractile cross bridges within the sarcomere and that this damage is healed through the inflammatory process, the inflammatory cascade. These are all things you can look up on Wikipedia. And as a result of the need for the tissue to heal itself, inflammation ensues this process takes two or three days, and then the soreness goes away. Uh, when you hurt yourself, if you, for example, you damage a spinal component, or you rupture a muscle belly, or you tear a few muscle fibers, which is more common, you will feel that injury immediately after it occurs. It is, it's an acute process, a very short time frame. If you come up out of the bottom of a squat and you tear a quad in the process, it, it becomes perceptible to you right now. So it's a fundamentally different process than delayed onset muscle soreness. I wouldn't describe delayed onset muscle soreness as pain. It's just soreness. I'd call it soreness, and that's all. Pain, the term pain, I reserve for more acute stuff, like muscle belly injuries. Although back pain, low back pain, presents 
as a as a chronic problem as well. And it is probably the result of accumulated damage that you've done by being an upright biped. And we talked about back pain before. And uh, uh, so that would have to be separated from, from this definition. When I'm talking about delayed onset muscle soreness, I'm talking about the kind that comes on 24 to 48 hours after the work, sometimes faster than that, maybe 12 to 18 hours after the work, and that goes away within 72 hours. Uh, Chronic back pain doesn't go away, all right? A muscle belly tear comes on immediately. It's obvious when it occurs that the injury has caused an immediate deficit in a movement pattern, in the movement pattern that caused it. If you come up with a, out of the bottom of a squat with a torn quad belly, you can't walk. You can't contract the quad because the acute pain prevents that from happening. Now that tends to heal up fairly rapidly as well because of the fact that a muscle belly is very vascular. And vascular tissue bathed in blood heals faster than non-vascular tissue like ligament tendon. Everything heals except cancer and low back pain. Unless you, well, low back pain can be fixed. Sometimes, sometimes it can't, but it just depends on, depends on the nature of it. Low back pain is just the human condition, you know. Kings and queens as well as you and I have low back pain. They don't like it any more than we do. And it doesn't sometimes go away. But an acute injury like a muscle belly tear will heal up within a couple of weeks. While it's healing, it's very important for you to understand that you must be making that muscle belly contract during the healing process or it's going to heal in a scar. And that scar is going to be the source of continued injury because the scar itself is not contractile. And since it's not contractile, it's also not expansive. It's not uh, extensible either. And if it extends under a big load, there will be another injury proximal to that scar, and it'll happen from now on. This is why a bad hamstring tear quite often ends an athletic career, because they're very seldom rehabbed correctly you have to if you have a hamstring belly tear you have to get on it within 48 hours and start making it work start making it contract start making the side of the injury have to function in the way that it will need to function when it's healed up if you rest it it will scar i assure you it will scar rest it long enough to make it stop bleeding and then start making it contract again Start with a lightweight, high reps over the course of a couple weeks. Head down to a heavier weight with lower reps. Making the thing remodel in a functional way. And that's that's how we rehab these kinds of things. But the pain, the pain that you will see during the process of rehabbing that muscle belly tear will go from acute and sharp and focused to, as the healing progresses, less acute, more broadly perceived, and blurry, to use a a metaphor. Uh, The pain goes from focused to blurry, and finally it goes away. And if you do it correctly, muscle belly tears are fairly amenable to, to, to healing. The exception to that would be a complete pec belly rupture. Those don't, those won't rehab. They just, the ends of the pec detach, lay down on the rib and reattach someplace where they're not supposed to be. And this is why a pec belly tear is a pretty bad injury. They're real hard to fix. So, You're sore and have pain here and there all the time since you started lifting weights. I wonder how old you are. 
I would bet you're older than 40. And uh, it's unusual for a 20-year-old kid to be in pain like that all the time. Uh, But old guys, let's assume you're 40. Assume you're 45. You're hurt anyway because you're an old human and old humans just hurt. You want to hurt and be strong or you want to hurt and be weak. You know, as you get older, you're going to hurt. Everybody does. Something hurts on me all the time, and it's just you learn to ignore it. It's like tinnitus. You learn to ignore it, you know. That kind of thing, I, you know, I can't tell you what to do about it. Uh, if it's interfering with your ability to get to sleep, it's going to have to be dealt with somehow. Uh, I have found that a combination of naproxen, Tylenol and alcohol works pretty good to get you to sleep. And, uh, you know, I'm not recommending alcoholism as the cure for this, but, you know, if you have a drink before you go to bed, you'll probably sleep better. Alcohol's really, alcohol's an amazing, it's an amazing drug. People have understood this for thousands of years. And if something's hurting, it takes your attention away from it. And, uh, it can be useful. It can be a bad problem, but it can be useful. I guess there have probably been a lot of doses of alcoholism that have been attributed to chronic pain. Could have happened. But here we sit. What do you want to do, you know? So I hope that helps. Now we have Pan Iakov says, Hello, Rip. What is your opinion on combining fasting and lifting i've come up with a fasting routine regimen routine slash regimen and i am considering running it for a while it basically looks like this train three days a week on starting strength four rest days as per usual training days or eating days with lots of carbs and proteins to fuel the workout rest days or fasting days do you think this is sustainable slash effective for someone looking to get stronger and cut some fat? Thanks. Well, Pan, what are you planning on doing about recovery, and when do you plan on doing it? I plan on recovering on my resting days. That's why I'm resting those days. I'm recovering. And if I'm going to recover... I know that I'm going to need protein, fat, and carbohydrate in order to accomplish that process on my resting days. So the question is, do you plan on recovering? If you plan on getting recovered, if I were you, I would eat on my resting days. You will find that it doesn't work nearly as well to stress the piss out of yourself on your workout days and then provide no substrate whatsoever for recovery on the, on the days that are designed for recovery. So just keep that in mind. But as usual, you're free to do this any way you like. Uh, Caesar asks, do you discuss torque in relation, in regard to the big three during coach development? No, we discuss moment force, not torque because they're not the same thing. That's We've talked about that before. Now, some guy with the clever name Rip Uhaniwan. Do you think this is some kind of a Star Wars thing here? Or something? I don't know that character. Did you? Uhaniwan? Uhaniwan? Rip Uhaniwan? That sounds like a Disney Star Wars name. It does, doesn't it? Well, I don't know. Maybe it's Maybe the guy's a... Nigerian or something. I have no idea. Don't recognize the name, though. Would Rip be a Nigerian prop, uh, given name? Maybe his uh, parents uh, were just big fans. Of him. Could be. Uh, nonetheless, he says, what would be your thoughts on substituting some plant-based protein, for example, pea protein, for dairy-based protein for middle-aged starting strength lifters? If one were to do that, what other supplements might be useful? Well, I am uh, 
uh, a proponent of psychological health. All right, and veganism is a psychological disorder, as far as I'm concerned. Now, this may come as a shock to some of you people, but uh, there's absolutely nothing uh, from a physiological or anthropological analysis that would indicate that veganism is a reasonable approach to the human diet. Nothing whatsoever. It is a it's a it's a religious possibly a religious or moral consideration, but I'm, I'm not a, a theologian and I'm not a psychologist. Uh, and I'm primarily concerned with efficiency here. Uh, plant-based diets are not efficient. Plant-based proteins are incomplete. If you're going to do pea protein, it's going to have to be engineered to the point that it's no longer pea protein going to have to have amino acids added to it it's going to be uh synthetic it's going to be an additive based product uh, why don't you just you know have some meat and just shut up you know just have some meat if you object to killing animals uh do you disinfect your mouth with mouthwash what about the poor little bacteria? Well, they're not really animals, but, you know, they're alive. You know, they're alive. You're killing them. What about when you walk around in the yard and step on nematodes? Nematodes don't have a right to be in your yard uninterrupted in their little crawly business by your feet squishing them into protoplasm. How do you think they feel about that? You know, do you... Do you, what do you do about roaches in your house? You just coexist peacefully with the roaches in your house? What about mice and rats? What about the rats in your attic chewing the insulation off of your wiring? Potentially subjecting your house to being burned down. What do you peacefully coexist with those? Where does this shit stop? Uh, I just, I, I don't understand it. And maybe Rip Unahawan, Uhanawan, is not asking about this. Maybe he's just wanting to add some pea, plant-based. Why don't you just take some whey? Why don't you take some whey protein? No, no cow died in the production of whey protein. You know, it's certainly a sustainable source for animal protein. It's very high quality whey protein isolate very high quality food product uh if you're going to supplement i would suggest that you use whey and if you object to the use of whey because of the uh perceived inconvenience it has been to dairy cattle uh i think the word was rape rape raping, raping the dairy cattle sucking on their titties uh, well, I, th I never thought about it like that. Okay, well, I guess we are raping them. Even if there's no penetration involved, it could be considered rape, right? Oh, that makes me uncomfortable. So, all right, n n now, anonymous is a novice, and my stomach can't even take two full glasses of milk without extreme pain and constipation. What should I do? Serious question. Stop drinking milk, you moron. Don't drink milk. I don't drink milk. If, if, it, if it's murder in you to drink milk, don't drink milk. Have you tried Fair Life? It's a, apparently a tasty alternative to lactose-bearing milk. It's a lactate-treated product. It's delicious, widely available these days. Give it a try. But if, if milk is, is, you know, producing extreme gastric distress, don't drink the shit. Nobody told you you had to drink milk. Are you people still belaboring under the, laboring under the delusion that I want everybody on the surface of the planet to drink a gallon of milk a day? Good God, get over that. That's so 12 years ago, you know. 
We've never said that, and that's stupid. And if you think that, you're a fool. I don't drink milk. I hadn't drunk milk in 30 years. I'm not trying to grow. I'm a fat old man. I don't need to grow. And if you're a skinny, underweight, 18-year-old kid, yes, drink a gallon of milk a day, maybe a gallon and a half of milk a day. But I have never suggested that you have to drink milk if it's if it's not uh, uh, appropriate to your particular situation. And there are certain circumstances under which you need to drink a whole bunch of milk, but there are far more circumstances under which you need to not drink any milk at all. Did you hear what I just said? More people need to not drink milk than need to drink milk. All right? Okay, not everybody needs to drink a gallon of milk a day. Okay? God damn. Wait. So if I'm 38 years old and 325 pounds, should I drink a gallon of milk a day? So Nick asks if he's 38 years old and 325 pounds, should he drink a gallon of milk a day? Well, maybe. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you got to drink a gallon of milk a day. Go oh, mad and shit. How else you know? are you going to go mad? How else? I, you know. Oh, what about Bree? Bree, who's a female, 31 years old. 146. 146 or something like that. Should she drink a gallon of milk a day? Oh, maybe. Okay. You know, everybody needs to be fat like us. Chocolate milk. Chocolate milk, yes, absolutely. <laughs> right. All right, people are stupid motherfuckers. They just really are. They insist on, this is, once again, goes right back into not reading the book, not reading anything. You know, the standard Facebook situation is read the headline and start typing, right? Isn't that what you do on Facebook? Maybe the first paragraph, maybe just half the first paragraph, and immediately start recording your ultra-important thoughts on this subject. She's 30, not 31. I remember when that was important. I remember a long time ago when that was important to me. So D. Greer asks, hi, Rip. Well, D. didn't ask hi. He said hi. What are your thoughts on intersex individuals in regard to participation in sports and training in general? As I understand it, intersex is different from a trans person. Is there an impact on neuromuscular efficiency such that there could be an intersex individual with the external appearance of a female, but with the neuromuscular efficiency of a male? Should this person be able to compete in women's sports? Well, we debated on whether to include this, but I think it's important to understand uh, that these people are, are, extreme outliers you know the name Castor Semenya because she's been in the news recently she's an XY chromosome female she was born uh, with uh, and assigned the congenital sex of female at birth because of her physical appearance uh, I don't know all of the physiological details of Miss Semenya's situation uh, I understand that her testosterone levels are high and have been high for quite some time, and therefore, if she was XY in the womb, she probably was exposed to in utero levels of testosterone that were higher than other females. So you're asking, what do we do about Castor Semenya? And I don't know. I don't have the slightest idea what we do about Castor Semenya. Fortunately, it doesn't come up that often. Uh, I'm glad I'm not in a position to have to tell her that she can't compete in the women's division. Uh, I'd hate to have to tell her that. Uh, would it be fair for her to contribute to women who, were, who did not have the advantage of in utero testosterone? I don't know. She's a female. And best I can tell, she gets to compete with 
the other females in the women's division. Uh, but what we do about extreme outliers like that, I am far, far less concerned with than what we do with cock and balls men who want to lift against the uterus and ovaries females in the women's division. That's rather uh, that that's rather cut and dried. I'm obviously not in favor of that, and neither are you really. If you'll think about it for more than about five seconds, you're not either. Especially those of you that have sisters and daughters and mothers and cousins who would like an opportunity to compete in the women's division and not have to compete against men in the women's division. Okay. But about Castor Semenya, I don't know. I don't know. That is a, that's a difficult question, and it's outside my purview, thankfully. Okay, now who is next? Anonymous again asks, if I had to abstain from whiskey, red meat, or milk, which one would I choose? Well, I don't drink milk. So there's my choice, right? I don't drink milk anyway, so I don't have to abstain from it. And Khaled asks, Khalid, Khaled, have you ever tried camel? I prefer women, Khalid. Thanks for joining us this week. Starting Strength Radio. Send us your questions. We'll talk about it.